0: i'm ron aaron carol zorniel our co-host on special assignment so it will be just me with our very special guest and when we saw an article about marianne o'hara i said to our producer christy romero you need to find her mm-hmm. and christy did and we we're delighted to welcome marianne o'hara on board she is the author most recently of little matches a memoir of finding light in the dark it's inspired by Nine ninelivesnotes.com a blog that she kept while her daughter, Caitlin, was waiting for a lung transplant. Marianne and Caitlin's story has been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, the Boston Globe, Psychology Today, and elsewhere. Marianne holds an MFA in creative writing, has taught creative writing at Emerson College, and was an award and and is author of an award-winning novel, Cascade. And we are delighted, Marianne O'Hara, to welcome you to Caregiver SOS On Air. Thank you so
1: much. I am very happy to be here. Caregiving
0: is important to me, so I'm always happy to talk about it. Well, we're delighted to have you on board. And uh, as I was saying to you off the air, I'm so sorry about uh, your daughter passing away, but uh, you mm-hmm. said you're a writer and you were able to use your talent and your knowledge not only to help you with uh, what was grief, but to help others.
1: Exactly. After Caitlin passed, immediately after the only thing that made me feel remotely better was writing and I would write on my blog and I would share very frank honest things and I would hear from strangers who said that reading my honest talk really helped them deal with their own problems and their own grief and since I'm a writer I had never been interested in writing the personal I was truly a fiction writer but after after Caitlin's passing writing the personal seemed like the only kind of writing that mattered And I wanted to write the book right away. There are some writers who will tell you you can't write from inside grief, but I I knew I needed to. I wanted to make a record of it so that other people could read it and say, yes, this is what it feels like.
0: Tell us about Caitlin.
1: Caitlin was, uh, wow, she was wonderful. I miss her every day. She was really my person in life. She was my only child. She had cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic lung disease. So, having another child was always, you know, pulling the roulette wheel a little bit. And uh, she, uh, she lived a, a normal life. Uh, one of the I give a lot of talks, and one of the talks that I give speaks a lot about invisible illness. Cystic fibrosis is often an invisible illness because Caitlin was beautiful. She looked like anybody else. She lived independently for most of her adult. Life. She had a career and a boyfriend, a serious boyfriend. But her lung function, the last years of her life, even though you couldn't tell, was about thirty percent of normal. She needed oxygen to sleep and to fly and to do to climb stairs, etc. It was hard for her. So, it, it was an invisible disease. is is good in a way because it lets you live a so called normal life. But then it's also tricky and, and very hard. And when the time came that she needed oxygen 24 seven, she was actually relieved. She said, you know, I used to think, oh, my God, I'll die. I'll never go outside once I need to wear oxygen all the time. And now wow. I feel like at least I look as sick as I really am. Wow. Yeah. A
0: friend who has a daughter with cystic fibrosis and uh, it, it puts tremendous pressure on the family, as you know.
1: Yeah. You, you never know, like emergency These can happen overnight, and it's hard to plan the future because oftentimes you end up in the hospital for two weeks instead. How old
0: was she when she passed away?
1: She was 33. She was waiting for a lung transplant for two and a half years, Um, and that's a whole other story, how long she had to wait. Um, But, yeah, she she had just turned 33.
0: Well, one of the things that you took from that experience, uh, you went on to become a a certified end-of-life doula. Yeah. which I think most people have no idea that they exist, you as a doula, and, and what you do. Uh, mm-hmm. So first of all, let me remind folks who've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Air, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host on Special Assignment. And so it is me today with our special guest, Marianne O'Hara, an author, a speaker, a writer who uh, is sharing with us her experiences becoming a certified end-of-life doula from UVM's Larner College of Medicine. What is an end-of-life doula?
1: An end-of-life doula, exactly. People don't know what they are, generally speaking. But many people are familiar with a birth doula, a support person who helps people come into the world. And an end-of-life doula is at the other end of that life arc and helps people and their families and their loved ones depart at the end of life. And just anything and everything that can be done that the client wants done to help make life a little bit easier. When Caitlin passed, we were not expecting it. And you, I, I speak a lot. I speak a lot to doctors and in the hopes of helping them realize that everyone needs to talk about death with a little more bravery and empathy.
0: We don't do a very good job of that in this country.
1: We don't. And, you know, Everyone, there were a lot of people who are trying to change that, and I'm one of them. But, you know, at the end of life, Caitlin, Caitlin, it, it was a it was a mess in the ICU at the end of life. And the doctors aren't trained to really speak frankly with you. And so everyone gets caught up in that push, push, push to do everything possible to save someone's life at the end. And then suddenly that person is gone and they need that bed in the ICU. And everyone's very empathetic. But you can barely move and you need help. You have to move out of the family room that you've lived in for a month. You need to go back to your apartment. You have to plan a funeral. And that's just after someone has passed. And that's where an end-of-life doula can come in and do any kind of arranging that needs to be done. The training is very extensive and it covers, it's not a medical position. A lot of people assume that it is, but it is not at all. But the doula can work as the liaison between the family and the hospice team, the medical team, et cetera, and just help everything run more smoothly. And it can include, you know, feeding the cat, giving hand massages, helping plan the funeral. My favorite part of of this work is helping people write their legacy stories. And that's not something you have to wait until the end of life to do, but it's something that can be important for people and their families at the end of life. I In fact, do so you've much. developed
0: a legacy writing workshop.
1: I have, and I really enjoy giving that as a matter of fact. A woman just emailed me the other day to say that she had created a workshop on her own, and she had asked me for permission to like use my questions and all of that beforehand, but she had given it to about forty of her um class it was like a class reunion kind of thing, and she had given it to about forty women. And it was just really wonderful because it's not just sitting there talking about, uh, you know, day to day activities, uh, which is more oral history. But a legacy story is more about who you really are, what kind of wisdom you would like to pass on at the end of life. So doulas do that. Um, I I have always been a person who likes to volunteer, especially with people who are not doing well. I find that people at the end of life tend, there's just not as much baloney, you know, and I, after losing Caitlin, I thought, well, I can, I think I I used to volunteer at a a cancer ward at one of the Boston hospitals. And I thought, I think I'm ready for hospice or for people who are really at end of life, because I've certainly lived through the worst of it myself. And I have such empathy for people who are, who are faced with end-of-life issues, especially when they're not ready for it.
0: As you think about the work of a doula, uh, how do people get referred to you if they aren't aware that you exist?
1: Exactly. Um, They don't. And and I'm not somebody who does it as a full-time job at at all, because I'm primarily a writer. So what I, I do, I do voluntarily. However, if someone wants a doula, one of the best places they can go is to... Inelda.org, and it's a nationwide, uh, group of end of life doulas, I N E L D A dot And you can, they have a whole site there where you can type in, find a doula near me. And they've all been trained by the Inelda organization. And you can, you know, that you can link to their websites, et cetera, and you can read about them and you can interview them. After that New York Times article, a lot of people contacted me through my author website seeking advice and or, you know, me to come help them. In many cases, I wasn't close enough to help them. But in some cases, I did legacy stories with people. And I referred them to the NMDA website.
0: When you think of end of life, and as you said with Caitlin, you and your husband, Nick, were really not prepared for what was happening. And, and then she dies. Uh, yeah. What is it you wish you had known and would have done differently?
1: It's interesting, you know, lung transplant is a very serious surgery, of course, and at the hospital where she was listed, we had to go through a week's worth of appointments when she was being evaluated to make sure that she was a good candidate for transplant. And it wasn't until after she died that I realized that we had never talked about what would happen if transplant didn't happen. For everything else, you know, the all the medical tests and certainly making sure the insurance was there to pay for it all, we had never talked about what would happen if transplant didn't happen. There was no plan beyond hope. And one of the big messages that I like to give to medical people especially is that I think it's really important for medical people to help their patients make a plan for the worst, and then hope for the best and make a plan for the worst, even if the worst isn't even, is just a remote glimmer on the horizon. Because once you prepare for the worst, it eases a lot of anxiety. I can tell you that living with my daughter's chronic illness all those years, we lived with chronic anxiety. There's just always an art undercurrent. And anyone who deals with a serious diagnosis knows this. And it can be hard to think what is the worst that can happen. But if someone sits you down and makes you realize, well, this is what being put on life support really looks like. This is what life support can do to your body. It's not pretty. And as you boy, think
0: about, as you think about that end of life, uh, we'll talk in, in just a moment uh, about how you begin that process to get people talking about it and thinking about it. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zernial, our co-host on special assignment today, our guest is Marianne O'Hara. End of life doula is where she got her training at the UVM's Larner College of Medicine. She also is a writer and author, a speaker, and we're delighted to have her on board. Stick with us right here on Caregiver SOS on air.
1: Friend. Hello friend. Really good to see you once again Hello friend. Hello
0: friend. Really good to see you once again thanks for sticking with us right here on caregiver SOS on air I'm Ron Aaron Carol Zorniel, our co-host on special assignment we're talking with Marianne O'Hara uh, Marianne is an author a writer uh, wrote about uh, the passing of her daughter Caitlin and out of that experience, uh, became certified as an end-of-life doula, and we're talking about what that experience has been like and what we should know about preparing for death. It's a 100% certainty we're all going to be there, and so it doesn't hurt to think about it. You were suggesting that we need to take a look at uh, the kinds of planning needed before somebody passes, well before we're, we're at that crisis point, and I was thinking about those end-of-life documents uh, mm-hmm. most primary care physicians uh, have their patients fill out. How do you want to uh, handle, uh, do not uh, resuscitate? How do you want to handle feeding tubes? How do you want to handle this? Uh, who's going to be your uh, uh, medical power of attorney? Those kinds of things. But that's not what you're really talking about when you talk about end-of-life planning as a doula.
1: Right, exactly. Those documents that you know most of us are familiar with, are like signing a lease. They're, they're just legal documents and they're black and white ink on paper and they don't seem real. What is real is when you're in the ICU and you hear a family screaming down the hall because they've just lost a loved one and the reality of death really hits home and you are amped up on cortisol and adrenaline and you are in no condition really to make important decisions at that point because all you can think is save my loved one save my loved one And the and the doctors and the insurance companies they all get on board at that point and they they do everything and they pay for everything now i don't want to say that you get rid of hope there's always a really fine balance between hope and realistic expectations but i think that it's defining what realistic expectations are that is important because I think that's where the medical teams need to step up and speak honestly to to their patients. Like I know that Caitlin's surgeon, a very, very, a wonderful, wonderful man, he kept the the this false optimism going for so long that I I was confused and I was afraid to ask really what what's going on here because he kept saying, We'll get you transplanted, Caitlin. We'll get you I have a good feeling about this weekend. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not an expert on transplant. He wouldn't say such things unless they were true. And then suddenly everything tipped upside down and she was she was dying. They were we have to pull the plug. It was just so horrible. Now what's interesting is that um doctors are not usually trained to have these difficult conversations. But at Northwestern School of Medicine, uh, what is it? The Feinberg, let me see, I have it here. Yeah, fine, Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine. They did a study where they used professional actors in these mastery learning course, simulation-based mastery learning course practices to train students to deliver difficult news in an empathic and caring way. And everyone who had that training learned the skills necessary. To have those hard conversations, and it can be as simple as understanding how the brain works. Like starting a conversation by saying, "We're going to have a hard conversation," and that sort of alerts the amygdala to get its panic out of the way, and then the body can calm down a little bit and take in what needs to be heard. A lot of places too, um, palliative care is people associated with end of life, near death, etc. I would love to. See palliative care become taken on at prognosis. You know, sorry, taken on at diagnosis regardless of prognosis. Because Caitlin's palliative care experience was that she was she had serious end of life cystic fibrosis for years, and she's on the transplant list. She's been waiting for two years, and one day a palliative care doc walked in and introduced herself. And Caitlin said it was like the Grim Reaper walked in. Whereas if that palliative care had come in early on, those kinds of conversations could have happened. Now, there are a lot of palliative care doctors who are working to change that. There are a lot of good minds in the field. And I will say that a lot of them are on social media where they are working. There's a woman in um, Canada, a palliative care doctor. She calls herself Dr. Sammy on TikTok who talks about end-of-life issues. In a, in a really easy, comforting way to, to help people prepare. There's someone called Hospice Nurse Julie on TikTok who has over a million followers. And she shares so many comforting stories about end of life, especially the ones that all the hospice nurses know about, people seeing their loved ones. Like there are a lot of really comforting, wonderful stories about end of life. And they're working to take the fear away. And and I'm I'm all for that. So... Did I go off on a tangent there a little bit wrong, But No,
0: you didn't go on a tangent. It's interesting. Uh, uh, when we talk about end of life, and, and we've been talking about really the, the relatives, the loved ones, the parents, the brothers, the sisters, the aunts and uncles, what about the patient? Uh, as, a, as an end of life doula, do you work with the patient as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's It's mainly the patient, sitting with the patient, spending time with the patient, doing whatever the patient needs and then the family is you know whatever their constellation is around them are, are the people you interact with but the the it's the client again it's not a medical position but it's the client who is who is the main person and usually an end of life doula will come in during um once someone gets that hospice diagnosis we're going into hospice now or we've got a you know a few weeks left and and that's when you go in and help them. And it really is individual. One of my nieces heads up a hospice um, care team in Portland, Maine. And before I had done this, she said, I had never heard of an end of life doula. And, you know, now she has. And it's and it's really helpful for the hospice team, too, to have this liaison between the client, their patient and, um, and their team. They're not always there 24-7, right. obviously.
0: You know, it's interesting. We've done a lot of shows on hospice, uh, and uh, one, one of the questions that always comes up is why people wait so long to put somebody into hospice. Uh, you can have six months ballpark in hospice, but very often uh, folks don't really make that choice until they have days left for that patient to live.
1: Right, I've I've certainly seen that with my husband's mother. She went she was in hospice for about a day and a half and she really liked it. You know, it's really unfortunate. Now it also depends on, you know, where you are and what your care team is like and what your insurance is like. Unfortunately, it's it's not it's not always easy for people to um have really good hospice care. It really everything's so different in this country.
0: Medicare will cover hospice? Right. right. What right. about a doula? Does it cover a doula too or not? No. And then how are no. they paid?
1: It And that's another thing where it's either volunteer. And a lot of us are volunteer hospice workers. So we're also volunteer doulas or right. people are paid about $25 an hour. Generally speaking, i is like a going rate. And the, and the family will pay for that or the client will pay, pay for that. And again, it's, it comes down to, um, That's why I'm such a. I've always been a believer in volunteer work, but not every people need to earn money. You know, it's not. It's it's very complicated, and it's part of the problem of healthcare in this country, isn't it?
0: Now, for those who are listening who have have no idea the kind of comfort and uh, support that a doula will bring, we've been talking about and dancing about it. Paint a picture for us of uh, perhaps some clients that you have worked with and how that played out.
1: Well. I think one of the best things is the person comes, the the doula comes specifically because this person is dying. And so there's an openness between the two, between the client and the doula that feels kind of freeing. Um, there's one person in particular that I'm thinking of who didn't have to pretend, didn't have to pretend for his, his kids or his wife, I'm going to make it, this and that, Um could talk freely about his thoughts about the afterlife and what kind of bird he was going to be when he came back to say hi to me and he to <laughs> make sure he startled me. And he did. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, it's comforting in one of the primary um, parts of training that I know they do in all the groups is really say that you, you meet the person where they are. They call it holding space. And and it's going in with the Adula has no agenda, but going in and just letting the client sort of set the tone. And there's a lot of quiet time that happens. A lot of hand holding, reading, um, reading favorite books, poems, etc. It's very a lot of. I, I used to do um, Reiki at Boston Brigham and Women's Hospital on patients there because it. Gave people comfort, you would put on quiet music, um, really nice like rhythm let them get started with really nice rhythmic breathing so they can really relax. And then just like putting some giving them some gentle touch, and it just really relaxes and calms people, and people need that kind of peace and calm at the end of life. And one thing I will say is that, and this is very common, um so many times the patient uh, the Family does not want to talk to the the dying person. They don't want to talk about the impending elephant in the room that the person is dying. And so many times the person who's dying just really wants to talk. They just wants to be open and honest about it because they know they're dying.
0: That's interesting. They don't want to say what is the obvious you're dying. Yeah. Wow. We are flat out of time for folks who want to learn more about you and your writing. Is there a website they can go to?
1: Yes, thank you. It's my name. It's Marianne O'Hara.com And it's M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E-O-H-A-R-A.com.
0: And we can find out about your books and where to get them and what have you. Thank you so much for coming thank out you. and sharing your story, Marianne O'Hara. Really, really appreciate it.
1: Well, you're doing really wonderful work. Thank you for doing it.
0: You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now we know a little bit about end-of-life doulas. And thank you very much uh, to Marianne O'Hara. For Carol Zernial, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zernial and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. Let's see, you've uh, applied for our open position for account representative? Yeah, that's the one. Great. I see you went to UC Berkeley?
1: It was really awesome. We had several sit-ins to protest oppressive capitalism.
0: Oh, and uh, how about your skills for this position?
1: Oh, yes. I know all about how to spot microaggressions and root out privilege.
0: Uh, we don't really do that here. We do accounting and finance consulting. Do
1: you have any safe spaces?
0: Safe spaces?
1: Yes, where people can go to get away from the colonialist mentality. As long as there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion policy, we'll be fine.
0: (sighs) Life's too short to waste your time on bad hires. I'm Andrew Krapischetz, the CEO and founder of RedBalloon.Work. Every week, tens of thousands of reliable, career-minded job seekers visit RedBalloon.Work without all that woke nonsense. Post your open jobs at RedBalloon.Work. And if you put in promo code SALEM, you'll receive 10% off your first month's job postings.